Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clubo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Fay. Good afternoon, Bobo. How are you doing today? Doing well, Cliff. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Beautiful day up here in the Pacific Northwest, mid-70s. The sun is shining. Uh, Just got off a great weekend. It is fantastic. What is going on down there in California? I had to mute you for a second. had some jackass driving by slow. The bass cranked up. (laughs) Keep that in, Pruitt. (laughs) Anyways, it's good. I um, went out to the Ohio conference and saw you out there. We did that live recording, and then I went back. Flew to California and hung out with Fireball for a couple of days with my parents and then went up for, I was up in three days with Bart and uh, Big Sur and we were doing some squatching up there. We didn't have, we saw mountain lions every night, but no Bigfoot. Jeez, you saw mountain lions every night? Yeah, they're so thick. Dude, that Big Sur, man, it, it, people don't never think about it because it's a pretty deserty environment really, but there's so many pig and it's just these giant, huge tracks of private ranch on like thousands of acres. It's like that really, really, really rich people. Own. And, you know, there's some of those acres, some of the uh, ranches that are like 20, 30,000 acres. Yeah, it's kind of overlooked. You know, a lot of it is military as well. You can't have access to it. So Fort Hunter Liggett. And that's for that David Walsh of that famous setting, this USC psycholo- psychiatric professor. Yeah, as a PhD in psychology, and he saw a Sasquatch down there. He's obviously not nuts. Yeah, so it was good to hang out with Bart, and then um, just got back home yesterday. Back home yesterday, huh? Well, you know, I've got a gig coming up. I'm up in Tennessee the weekend, uh, what, the 20th or something in May? Up at, um, the uh, Smoky Mountain Bigfoot Festival was the name of it last time I checked. So, yeah, that's going to be the weekend of the 22nd. Do you have anything coming on? I'm pretty sure I don't have anything going on until July 10th when you and I go down to Florida outside of Tampa for the Great Florida Bigfoot Conference. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun, except for being in Florida in July. That's not the best time to be. There's too hot, man. Well, it's not like we're, when we work, we'll be inside. So when we're outside, we can drink cold brews and swim in some nice pools or rivers or oceans, lakes, whatever they got down there. That sounds cool to me, man. Yeah, so I, that's going to be a great event. There's not a lot of events going on in Florida. So if you are down in that area on that weekend, come out and say hi to Bobo and I. I don't think you're going to regret it. We don't bite and we don't bite hard. All right. Well, I think we've talked long enough, man. I don't want to, I don't want to leave our guests waiting, man. Cause this is an exciting thing for me. The guest we have on today. I mean, if you don't know his name, you apparently haven't been in Bigfoot for very long and you haven't, you're, and you're certainly not well-read enough in my opinion. Um, it, this gentleman may not be one of the four horsemen, so to speak, but he knew them all. Uh, and, and he has been in the game a long time, a very serious level-headed, hardworking, no nonsense Bigfoot investigator with a track record dating back to 
decades. Um, he, he's uh, another example of one of these people that I held uh, as an idol, essentially, like someone I really strongly looked up to for a long time. And now I, I'm lucky enough to consider him a friend. I remember when I first met Thomas, God, it was almost 20 years ago, the Bigfoot, uh, when they opened the, I think it was when they opened the muse- museum up in Willow Creek, but I was just like, that's Tom Steenberg. And I remember like hearing his voice, you know, and be like, oh man, that's the dude. And getting an autograph book and all that. I know. And I know. And it is so exciting again to have him on the podcast for today. So I'd like to welcome in Thomas Steenberg. Thomas, welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond. Hi, how are you guys doing? Good. Hi, Thomas. Better now, man. <laughs> Great to hear. I didn't even know you guys had a podcast show. Well, we try to keep it secret. We, we're, we're, pri- we're private people. You know, we don't want people listening to our conversations. <laughs> but I do listen to your podcast, most of them uh, on the shoulders of giants. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's Julie Wrench's show. I help her out a bit with that. Yeah. How long have you been doing that, Thomas? Oh, we've been doing that a good uh, three years now, at least. Oh, see, I don't listen to any podcast. I don't even listen to my podcast. I figured I already said it once. I don't need to listen to it again. So, yeah. Well, interesting. I'll have to take a listen to that. Yeah, it's called On the Shoulders of Giants, hosted by Julie Wrench and yours truly. And how, when does it come out? Usually once every month. Okay, well, now it's a nice schedule. We bust our butts for once every week, man. It's tough. <laughs> Well, Thomas, you know, uh, what I've often said this is that one of the, the the bad things that has come about because of finding Bigfoot is a new influx of Bigfooters, which you would think is be, would be great. But a lot of these Bigfooters aren't exactly as well read as I think they should be. They, they really strongly depend on YouTube and everything to learn their Bigfoot stuff. So why don't you start by kind of introducing yourself to our listeners, because some of them may not know who you are, because uh, I know you from the books you've um, written and, of course, meeting you face to face numerous times. But uh, um, for those people who may not know of the books that you've written, why don't you kind of back up a little bit and talk about um, what, maybe not what got you into it, because that's kind of a boring question, unless you want to share that. Um, but how long you've been doing it and some of the um, products that you have produced. So when I say products, not necessarily the selling kind, but, you know, like the, the, the research that you've developed over the years. Right, Roger, that I started really, uh, well, I've been fascinated by the Sasquatch question ever since I was old enough to read Growing up in the 1960s, I was a real weird little kid. And, <laughs> and it all started for me when my parents brought home from my sister. I guess this is around 1965, somewhere around there. A hardcover Reader's Digest book that had the usual section in it on dinosaurs with the old beautiful paintings, you know, a T-Rex standing straight up, dragging his tail on the ground. Them telling you that Brontosaurus had to spend all his time in the water because he was too heavy for his legs. You know, stop paleontology basically knows this isn't true now. And in the middle of that uh, dinosaur section, there was this little two-page article with the usual three blurry photographs called The Thing in Loch Ness. I don't know, something in my head just clicked. I must have read that eight times. And pestering my parents for information, they gave me a library card, but lo and behold, a lot of your younger listeners may not remember. We used to learn about things by reading books. Yeah, they're thinking a library card. What, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, it means you get to go into the library and look at the books. <laughs> <laughs> and looking for books, and I knew at a very young age I was never going to move to Scotland. So I started reading about this thing in Western Canada called the Sasquatch. In the United States, you call it Bigfoot. But I think what really did it was coming down in a school night, not too long after that, my parents were watching a movie in the old black and white TV, and I came in around the corner expecting to hear the usual from my father. Hey, boy, it's school night. What are you doing here? Get back out there. But instead of that, he said, 
hey, hey, the lad's interested in this kind of thing. Maybe I ought to watch it. My mother sort of went, oh, no, no, he can't watch it. It's a bad dream. But my father won out the argument, and I'm sure he regretted that ever since. And what was playing was that old Hammer horror film starring the late Peter Cushing called The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. Do you remember that one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a Forrest Tucker in that as well. Forrest Tucker, yeah, of, of F-Troop fame. And, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it was Sasquatch from that moment on. And uh, when I was doing my time in the Army, I got posted out west to the Alberta Rockies. I took one look at the Rocky Mountains one morning. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. And I saw him for the first time in my life. It looked like a Hollywood backdrop. It was so phony looking. And I thought, you know, there's no wall between British Columbia and Alberta. They've been seen in eastern BC. They've got to be seen here, too. So I took out an ad in the local. This is the late 1970s, 1978. Took out an ad in the local Calgary Press. Sasquatch. Anyone who believes they've had a sight of this creature, please contact Thomas Steenberg and the phone number. And I didn't expect much result, but I swear to God, my phone was ringing on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. People see these things much more often than uh, a lot of the skeptics would have you believe. That's for sure. Oh, absolutely. And I got contacted by the late uh, Professor Vladimir Markotic, if you remember that name. Sure, yeah. He published his stuff with uh, Krantz back in the day. Uh-huh. Yeah, Sasquatch and other unknown hominids. Yep, absolutely. I have a copy of him. A very rare book. So, yeah, we met and we became sort of unofficial partners for the for, for, for a few years he had left. And uh, and I eventually met the late John Green. I met the late Randy DeHinden. I met the late Bob Timmons. I met the late Grover Kratz. I met all kinds of people. And I got to know and do work with all these gentlemen. And, well, like I said, I've been doing it ever since. It's going on 43 years now. Wow. And then he started publishing books in what year? 1989-90, that first book came out. And Hancock House recently just republished that in 2018. 1993, I wrote a second book, Sasquatch Bigfoot, The Continuing Mystery, 2000, In Search of Giants, and in 2004, Meet the Sasquatch, co-authored with Chris Murphy and John Green, and in 2012, Chris Murphy and I co-authored Sasquatch in British Columbia. Yeah, and, and these are all fantastic books, um, largely comprised of your own personal research, um, and you've, you've done so much work over the years. It's just staggering, really. Um, not only the, um, the the number of reports that you've personally looked into, but the thoroughness. You know, it's not it's not just uh, quantity; it's quality. And and your stuff stands out from everybody else's in your thoroughness and your your uh, adherence to facts and uh, just level-headed persistence. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much for plowing the way for, for us. Thank you. My philosophy from the day I started is stick to the facts and never deviate from the facts. Yeah, you know, and I tell the truth all the time because I, I have a lousy memory, you know, and, and it's just too hard to remember things that are untrue. But, you know, um, I just do, yeah, stick to the truth. It's much, so much easier for everybody that way. Yeah, you, you see, when, you, when you're interviewing a witness, you always got to remember there's only three possibilities here. Only three. One, they saw a Sasquatch. Two, they mistook someone or something for Sasquatch, or three, they're lying. And I, I hate to say it, but uh, in this day and age, with all the shows coming on and television and everything like that, I think number three is reaching epidemic proportion. Or just straight out lying, most people you think. Yeah, or making up stories to for their 15 minutes of fame, whatever. 
Yeah. What's behind all that, you think? Is that just a mental illness or is that just some desperate attempt at, at attention or what, what in the world do you think drives people? Or can it be even said, um, and this is most often the case, or is it just all individuals because these people are weird? Well, there are a lot of weird people, but basically all of what you mentioned and then some. Sometimes it's monetary. Sometimes it's just attention. Sometimes they're just looking for their 15 minutes of fame. The monetary thing really puzzles me because like I, I do make a living with the Bigfoot thing, but I have to, I own a brick and mortar museum and yeah, you know, well, well, hell what's wrong with that? No, nothing. I work my ass off and I scratch a living. Like I'm not rich. I'm not, I don't have a lot of extra money, my, but my bills are paid, you know? So this money thing, like, oh, I'm going to make a thing and I make a footage and make, fake some footage and, and make some money on it. So I, that, that just seems like a dead end to me. It's like, you're going to make 300 bucks every couple of years or something. Cause some TV show is going to license it. I don't know. It's ridiculous. Doesn't make sense to me. And fame, now that I've had a touch of that, like who wants that? Oh, I remember when you came up here in 2016 with your show. Uh, most of the people in your town hall meeting were for people from my files. Tom sounds like a like a 1930s gangster. Yeah, see? Oh. <laughs> well, it's like you said a little while ago. I wasn't even online to 2004. I'm, I'm a 1970s guy and... Uh, I, I always had to start my half. We didn't have it back then. We really don't need it. I was probably one of the last to stop using snail mail. <laughs> you know, uh, I, uh, boy, I don't know what the late Randy DeHin would do with all this stuff today. It, it, it just drives him batty. I think I hear a big whirring sound come from up there, and I think it's Renee spinning in his grave at a rapid pace. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm much more. I remember I used to hear when I, uh, I remember talking with you and John Green. You're like, because at that by, by the time I met you guys, I already talked to a couple thousand people, you know, probably witnesses in the previous 15 plus years. And I remember you guys I remember going like, you guys think like, because I thought like 90% of the people I talked to were telling the truth, you know. And then over the years, I've gradually, I'm a lot more skeptical, a lot, especially the last five years, I've gotten way more skeptical. And it, you really do got to go to the, to the scene with the witness and spend more than just a little bit of time with them to really get an idea. Because you'll know, start seeing, for, for a lot of them, if you spend enough time with them, you start seeing like they'll be like, they'll point out other things they think is Bigfoot. They're like, look at this, look at this. Like it's all evidence. You're like, oh man, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about or this woman, whoever. Oh, well, there, there's a big problem with a lot of people who call themselves researchers these days, too. I mean, let's face it, a researcher is somebody seeking an answer to a question. And a researcher, in, at least in my opinion, is someone who has to be able to accept the possibility that in the end, they may turn out to be wrong. I fully accept the possibility that in the end, the Sasquatch may turn out to be nothing more than Western North American mythology and folklore. I don't believe that, but I accept the possibility. So many people who call themselves researchers today, they sound more like religious leaders trying to push a faith than someone seeking an answer. Yeah, zealots, perhaps. Yeah, right? almost, pretty well, yeah. And there's so much of what I politely call Ivan Mark syndrome. It's, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. And I call it Ivan Marxism because he was the first sample of that I ever knew. Um, you guys know who that was, right? Of course, of course we do. Yeah, and Ivan Marks, you know, someone who may have been involved in something authentic once, but then when the attention dies down, the attention becomes more important than the subject. So they start making stuff up to remain the center of attention. And there's been so much of that nowadays. And uh, 
Uh, and of course, the, the people who well, you've heard them refer to the woo, I, I call them the inmates running the asylum. You know, they, so, they believe in Sasquatch, but they associate with the fourth dimension, UFOs, hobgoblins, this, that, and all kinds of weird and wonderful things. I think a lot of them don't really want the mystery solved at all. They just like the endless merry-go-round so they can go running around acting like Mulder and Scully. Well, that might be some people, but when you do see something real strange, it's part of your reality, how you interpret things and how you're going to see things for sure. And if you haven't seen it, then obviously you're going to be more skeptical of someone that... that oh, I, 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 don't, I don't deny that there's other strange things out there and weird mysteries, but to me, the Sasquatch is something all it's on, on its own. If it exists, and I do believe it does, I think it's a primate, a higher primate, a creature of flesh and blood. I thought you had, didn't you have kind of a sighting a few years ago? 2004, I saw a figure. And remember, I stick to the facts every DV, the facts. The facts are, I saw a figure. It was jet black in color and appeared to be walking upright. But the facts also are, it was almost a mile away. And I couldn't see details. So I can't say with 100% certainty that wasn't a great big gigantic outlook a man way up there. Though what he was doing there, I don't know. If that was a Sasquatch, I have seen one. If it wasn't, I still have not. Did you ever see a person at the same distance up there like you could do a comparison? Not on the spot. It's kind of hard to get to. But to tell you all this truth, Bobo, if I put a seven-foot man up where I was and, he, and, and observed him, I doubt I'd see him at all. I mean, this thing, the way I remember it, was big even for a Sasquatch. And how far away was it again? What did you say? About a mile. About a mile away. Yeah, about the, near the 24-kilometer point on the west side of Harrison Lake. You just go over the past the spot where it was. You go down, and you're near the entrance to Mystery Valley. That's where it happened. Oh, okay, right, right. I do remember Mystery Valley from being up there when we shot that episode up there. Yes, absolutely. You went right past the spot when you went up there. <laughs> now, stuff's still pumping out of that area, isn't it? Now, you still get reports out of there a couple times a year or more? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Out in Harrison Lake is still as active as it ever was. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso en Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. So now, uh, Thomas, you mentioned uh, um, about what it takes to be a researcher, just the basic uh, framework of your mind, you know, where you're coming from at the time. Um, what sort of uh, advice would you give to the people out there who fancy themselves a researcher, that, but perhaps don't um, find themselves raised to the level of what old old timers like us, if I, if I may say that, uh, might expect? Like, what should they be doing that they're not? The best way to do go about it is all I can say is, like I said, stick to the facts, every new facts, and have a healthy dose of skepticism and have a healthy dose of common sense. 
Okay. Now, one of the things, uh, no, I, I send you reports occasionally because I can't get up to British Columbia or, you know, and um, that's where you live now. I know you started in Alberta, but now you're over in BC. Um, and whenever I get a report from your area, I want to share the wealth and give it to you. And then you're, you're so good at what you do. And one of the things I really am so impressed with that you do is that uh, you apparently record a conversation and then transcribe it afterwards. Um, I don't know if you're always doing that or if you just do that occasionally, but, um, but when did you start doing that and of what value do you believe that holds uh from the beginning uh if i'm able to uh contact a witness and they're willing to give a full complete interview and i use the same set of questions i've been using since the beginning though i've added more to it over the years if i can get a full interview that's exactly what i do i record the uh the whole interview and i transcribe it and the whole thing goes into a file report do you attempt to put any sort of a, a qualitative um, brand on it? Like a, um, like here at the museum, just between my employees and I, when we do an investigation, we have like a one to five scale. One means absolutely not. Five is I can't, I can't think of anything else this could be. Um, and we, and three is right in the middle, could go either way. Do you, do you try to uh, put a qualitative um, grade on it any level or? I don't have a rating system, but I usually do say um, at the end of the reports, uh, uh, author or Steenberg comments, I'd say, if I think there's a possibility it was a case of mistaken identity or something, uh, I'll say so. But I'll also say, if I think he's likely he did see a SAS question, then that's what I put. Now, what sort of things do you, do you look, what kind of red flags do you look for um, as far as that, whether someone's telling the truth or it has, is a good observer or anything like that? Well, to tell you an honest truth, you know, uh, red flags is, uh, for instance, like someone who has a sighting like I did, but they tell you such details as though it was only 20 feet away. That's a red flag. Oh, yeah. It's almost like wishful thinking in a way. Like, this is what I imagine it to be. Uh, absolutely. When someone's telling me a pretty interesting count and I hear it, it's his 16th sighting in two years. That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of red flags. It's usually the, the, the thing is when someone's making it up, at least this is my experience. They still make the same mistake they always have since the beginning. They can't stop themselves. They always got to make it sound that much more intriguing, that much more exciting. And they just add a little bits more here and there. And, and, and they just can't stop themselves. And, and, and it is a law before the red flags go off. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Because really, at the end of the day, seeing a Sasquatch is usually brief and rather uneventful. Uh, the vast majority of sightings, like I saw it, it turned around and walked away. But, you know, if, if you can just stretch that into an hour and a half, convert, like, you know, description, well, something's up. <laughs> well, the fascinating thing about what I've done, like you, you guys know the classic tales, you know, like uh, Eight Canyon, uh, Albert Osman, the Ruby Creek incident, the Jacko capture. I mean, I another thing I found fascinating when I was investigating ongoing and since was looking into these classic tales of the past and trying to find out more about them, I understand Cliff recently, you, th you, you uh, heard, I read somewhere that you, you think you found the location of the cap of the eight Canyon cabin. Yeah. I'm, I'm 95% confident that that is what we've, 
found, basically. Mark Marcel found it. Mark Marcel found it. And he uh, invited me up to, to give my thoughts. And it was hard to get to. It fit the description of the, um, uh, the, the what is it, the Oregonian newspaper description of how to get to the location. Uh, Mark Marcel, of course, checked with the, uh, the head archaeologist for Gifford Pinchot National Forest. And he says the only record of any building ever being built in that area is, in fact, from these miners from back in those guys in the Ape Canyon story. And we found um, buried, buried just a few inches under the soil, um, the, the foundation beams of a cabin that had been built on the slopes of Ave Canyon, way up on the top on the side of Pumice Butte. And yeah, it seems to fit the description dead on. So I am 95% certain that uh, what we found were the, the foundations of that particular cabin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's fantastic. You see, I like looking in the old classic tales too. In the 80s, I spent a lot of time looking into the Albert Osman tale, which is another classic tale. Yeah, well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it's a classic tale. Whether it's true or not, who knows? Albert Osman fancied himself a bit of a writer. And when John Green was alive, he and June showed me a whole pile of scribblers he, he had written. One was his story of his Sasquatch cut, and the rest were all, you know, very drawn out, long born, and very badly done love stories and adventure stories in the wilderness and stuff like that, of fictional people and stuff like that. There are certain things in the story that bother me, let alone like he claimed he came out in the salmon arm of Jarvis Inlet. He ever looked at the distance he had to travel from the head of Toba Inlet to get there. I mean, to do that in one day is absolutely impossible. That's what uh, we were, we had uh, John Kirk on our um, on our uh, podcast here. You had John Kirk on, did you? Oh yeah, yeah, fantastic. Oh yeah, well, oh, yeah. He he did some work, and he thought he found evidence that uh, maybe. Uh, Albert Austin wasn't even in British Columbia at the time. Yeah, he had a lot of interesting things to say about that particular tale. So Yeah, I, I uh, took a look at logbooks, a certain logging operation. Now, John Kirk said he thought he found out that there was only one small logging operation of the Salmon Iron Shell Index going on when Albert Austin said he came out. That's not what I found. I found there were over 14 logging operations going on <laughs> <laughs> in the greater Shell Inlet at the time. But uh, only a handful of them even bothered keeping logbooks. And I looked at the logbooks of three that were operating in 1924, but not one of them mentioned finding an old prospector. And I contacted, like, the RCMP weren't, weren't uh, working in British Columbia back in the 1920s. The province had its own provincial police force. Uh, and I, I, I was talking to a charming lady at the provincial government archives of the provincial police force because one of his, his original stories, you recall, he said a, an elderly Indian gentleman boated him into Toba Inlet and spent the first night with him, right? Yeah. Well, that elderly Indian gentleman was supposed to pick him up in three weeks. I always wondered, what did that guy do if he came back and couldn't find him? What did he do? Just forget about him or did he report it? That's a good point, actually. Yeah, but you would think he would have reported it. Right, but that, that came up blank, too. There's no, I couldn't find any story of a missing persons report from Toba Inlet in 1924 other than a fishing boat that sank with a loss of three men that year down at the mouth of the Toba Inlet. Yeah, and, uh, so there was no, no indication. But then again, up in the B.C. coast in those days, it was probably every man for yourself. Who knows? But the one thing that always really bothered me about the Albert Osman tale was – he says that uh, on the boat trip in, he was talking with the old, uh, with the old Indian, and the subject of, of a missing man came up, and uh, the old Indian said Sasquatch got them. 
Well, I thought, how could that be since the words, this is 1924 and the word name Sasquatch wasn't coined until 1929. Yeah, yeah. Well, by J.W. Burns, not too far away from the area, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. J.W. Burns uh, in, uh, in an article from McLean's Magazine introducing B.C.'s hairy giants. He took the Stahelis word Sasquatch. Best way to do is basket, drop the B in that S-A-S. And he misspelt and mispronounced it. He called it Sasquatch. It was known as Sasquatch in Canada ever since. So you say the word basket, you drop the B and add a, put an S-K in front, and that's as close as you can get, huh? Yeah, Sasquatch, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, I, I was on the reserve with the, um, the Stahelis people, and they're, and they're saying, no, Cliff, it's like this. And then they would say the word, and I would try my best, and they would just laugh at me. <laughs> I, I ran that gauntlet to myself a few times, yeah. <laughs> and even J.W. Burns himself in 1941 wrote an article. Uh, this is long after he left the Stahelis Reserve, and he wrote an article saying Sasquatch was a uh, Squamish word from the Squamish nation and how it sounded. And he, he basically said the Stahelis people didn't even bring it up. That's, but we know we had that article from 1929 that was concentrated on the Stahelis Reserve, and he uses the word Sasquatch there. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the history of this whole subject is so convoluted in so many ways, just uh, with bad record keeping or things have been lost and rumors are spread. Um, it's so aggravating in some ways because, uh, like like yourself, Bobo and I are students of the history of the subject. Um, we love everything to do with it. Historical artifacts, historical newspapers and, and recordings, all of those things are of such interest to me. And, and Bobo, I think it's fair to say. Um, and it's such a shame that very, very little of it has has been recorded in any sort of solid way where we're now researchers like ourselves are trying to piece things together as best we can. Absolutely. And something that happened so long ago, you find out things about little pieces that just don't seem to fit where, when others do. <laughs> Yeah. So, like I said, they're classic tales and they'll always will be. Whether they're true or not, how do we ever know? Yeah, with Osman, the Osman story, though, there, there's just things about his story that I don't see. He had to have some kind of close interaction with these things or he wouldn't know these details that weren't known for decades. Oh, yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, John Green told me that, and I think he wrote in his book, too, that he used to know an old trapper who back in the 1930s, long before Albert Osman ever told his story officially, he didn't tell his story until 1955, 1930s, this old trapper said he knew a Swedish guy in the Toba Inland area that had been captured by one. So obviously the story had been told ever before Albert Osman came out, so to speak. <laughs> Very interesting. So yeah, another little thread worthy of seeing if that thread will unravel anything. So what about the other classics? I know you've done some work on, on, on Jocko. Oh, yes. 1884, Yale. Yeah. So, and of course, our, our audience has probably heard about this one. It's really common. It's long and short. So railway, railway workers uh, claim to have captured a juvenile Sasquatch, basically, and no one knows what happened to it. That's the ultra short version of it. But is, is there truth behind that, you think? It's either a great uh, early case or it's a, it's a fine case of 19th century tabloid journalism. I think that's, there's no question that it's that. I mean, but even then, it would have been based on something, I would imagine. You, well, you'd think, because you wonder why in 1884 people would make up a story like this. And you got to remember, 1884, uh, the only thing people knew about Sasquatch is the local stories that various First Nation tribes told them. And of course, they all had different names for it. You know, uh, 
Sasquatch was not coined. Uh, there were all kinds of names for it back then. And if you ever, Yale in 1884 was a boom town because of gold rushes. There's only like 80 people in the village today. But in 1884, there was like 15,000. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was a bad place. This Wild West, huh? Oh, Wild West. Like, John Green don't like hearing, or you never used to like hearing that because, you know, old folks here like like to think that the Canadian West, because we were part of the British Empire, was somehow more civilized than the American West. Well, absolute load of nonsense. It was just as bad. In many cases, it was worse. You want to think of Yale Town in 1884. Remember that old HBO show, Deadwood? You could have called that Yale Town would have fit right in. There wasn't a week went by without a gunfight, a stabbing, or hanging. <laughs> half the half the buildings were saloons, the other half were brothels. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was a wild, wild town. And uh, something like this happening about, and I, I know where the site is, just outside Tunnel Number Four, and it fits as closely to what they describe in that article as close as you could ask for. Have you picked up any other threads through the time? Like, obviously, I, I read about this first through Krantz. I didn't know about this until I started reading Sasquatch books in the early 90s when Krantz published his book. Um, and I've, I've heard since then that a few other threads have been um, discovered, you know, like the tunnel, for example. I know you and Chris Murphy, I think, probably worked together, I think, on discovering where the tunnel was. Um, have there been any other new uh, discoveries, like articles that have been published that echo that same story in different parts of the country? Or uh, absolutely. Like, Usually in the 19th century, uh, papers didn't share tabloid stories. But I found an article in the Winnipeg Free Press, also from 1884, from the uh, archives at the, at the museum in Calgary, Alberta, that described the Jocko story almost um, in mute detail. So obviously another paper in Canada was publishing the story at the time. And since then, a Colorado paper an American colleague of mine has sent me a copy of a Colorado paper making foretelling about this strange thing captured outside of Yale, British Columbia. So there are other stories. And the story was passed on. And like I said, they usually didn't pass tabloid stuff around. The thing is, a, a Dr. Harrington, who uh, supposedly examined the creature, well, I've looked at his journals. And it's odd that he never mentions it. Yeah, he certainly would have mentioned something like that, something so unusual. You think so? And uh, uh, John Kirk uh, uh, discovered that Harrington was famous for his photography, and John Kirk thought it was odd that he never took a picture of it. Maybe that the men would let him. <laughs> I mean, it's not like in eighteen eighty four you could pull an Instamatic out of your camera. These are big tripod things with flash, <laughs> flash powder, and stuff like that. So I don't know. Uh, I don't know why he wouldn't have taken a picture of it. And John also found uh, one of the, the handlers, the men who captured it, was a guy named George Tilbury. And John thought he found and thinks he's found uh, evidence. Uh, I'm surprised he didn't tell you this, but I'm surprised um, he found evidence that Mr. Tilbury was not in Yale at the time. And, and it wasn't too long after this, he died acting like a lunatic in prison. Yeah, I think he might have mentioned that to us, actually. I don't know why John thinks there's only one guy named Tilbury in all of British Columbia. And if they did, we're talking about the same individual. Why would the paper even pick this guy's name? What do they do? Roll it out of a hat? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, the, the story was that uh, Tilbury uh, and, the, uh, and the other handlers were going to take him and display him in Europe, but he disappeared from the record. Now, you remember the late Grover Kratz had a theory that maybe – P.T. Barnum and Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy was Jacko, the original Jojo the Dog-Faced Boy. 
Yeah, yeah, I think he was looking into uh, cemeteries and that sort of thing. Yeah, and he, he thought maybe uh, Jackal or Jojo's Dark Fist Boy had died and P.T. Barnum just buried it and forgot about it. I don't know if i go along with that because P.T. Barnum, I mean, we're talking about a guy who, showed, who sold a, chin, uh, a monkey and a fishtail to get him called the Fiji Mermaid. I mean, um, if the creature dying, that wouldn't stop him. He, he would have stuffed the body and displayed it anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was yeah. the ultimate capitalist. He wouldn't have stopped there, right? Yeah. You know, something else Krantz mentioned, if I, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was Krantz in his book that he said he tracked down the oldest person he could in Yale to see if they had stories, uh, any, any memories of Jacko coming through. And the person was too young for that, but they do, he, this person did remember something about that story. So I mean, that, that's a, pretty much the best he could do, I suppose. Yeah, I think you got that from John Green, because John Green told me the same thing. He interviewed an old man who was a young boy in Yale at the time, and though, even though... Uh, he, could, he didn't see the creature. He remembers all the excitement about it. I bet you John told that to Grover and Grover told it to you. Yeah. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, what, what are your thoughts on um, on Grover and, and being one of the first scientists looking into this? I mean, his, it all started with the with the Bosberg prints. And of course, that's been tainted because Ivan Marx is, is associated with that. He discovered the prints, actually. And but Krantz was very convinced by them. Should we be concerned that Ivan Marx discovered those? No, because uh, Rennie DeHinden said uh, the tracks that were cast, it was he that first found them, not Ivan Marks. Oh, really? I thought Ivan Marks is the guy who pointed it out to folks. Did he, he was just in the area. I, did he well, hey, I asked Rennie this. Um, uh, I, I knew Rennie DeHinden well. We we're good friends. And I asked, uh, Rennie, are you sure that he didn't leave you? He said, I'm the one that said, let's go down this way. <laughs> he was on the other goddamn side of the road i found him by the fence in the railway tracks <laughs> you know maybe at some other time we can have you on again as renee de hinden we can interview renee de hinden and you can just do that voice for the whole time that would <laughs> you know renee used to hate it when i impersonated <laughs> <laughs> oh fantastic <laughs> Now, Renee must be rolling over in his grave right now, just with all, all the, the malarkey floating around in the Bigfoot community and everything like that. He, he, I don't know if it's a good thing that perhaps he didn't live long enough to see some of the stuff that's been happening. Oh, my God. He would, he would have flipped his lid the way it is today. It was bad enough when he was alive, not with the Internet and everything. I mean, the Internet's a great tool that it is. It, in a lot of ways, it's the worst thing that ever happened this research because it's a soapbox for every snake oil salesman out there. So, uh, so Rene actually is the one who discovered the Bosberg prints and cast them. The ones that were cast, yeah, the two that were cast. There were other castings made, and you can see variants in them from the original castings. Like there's indication of toe movement in the cripple foot itself. Mm-hmm. Now, those handprints that came out of there, um, now those are straight Ivan Marks handprints. And I know there, they, there's, there's been some concern because Ivan Marks has discovered them. But what a lot of people don't, re- and by the way, I, I will say right off the bat, I think that the Ivan Marks handprints are probably legitimate. Okay, even though Ivan Marks, I know, made a fake foot, uh, some fake footage at that time. Um, Peter Byrne uncovered that, et cetera. But um, and here's why. And, and, and I got some flack from Dan- Daniel Perez about this. And then I explained why. And he said, oh, well, maybe you're right. On. And um, so let's let, hear me out here. Turns out there's actually footage. Um, f- there's film footage of those handprints in the ground before they were cast. Have you seen that? I've never seen that. I have it. I have it, in fact. Yeah, um, some collectors purchased uh, the collection um, of uh, Peter Byrne out here in the coast, and um, it was in his old 
footage. Now, I don't know if Peter Byrne owned it or he just had a copy of it. It doesn't really matter. I'm, I'm, we're not making money off of this or anything like that. But the footage itself shows um, the the sandy sort of hillside. It looks like a slope, so I'm going to call it a hillside, um, where these handprints from the ground. And by the way, when I saw this footage, there's a lot of Bosberg stuff in there. Peter Byrne's stuff, he went out and filmed in Bosberg. And a lot of people, I, I sat Larry Lund down and we went through and tried to identify as many faces as possible and that sort of thing. Um, but there's a, about a 45 second section of this piece of foot or this film um, where it shows the sandy or dirty hillside and there are handprints in it. And being a cast guy like myself, I was looking at the handprints. I go, oh my God, those are almost certainly the Bosberg handprints from Ivan Marks. Look at that. And there were so many other handprints besides the two that were cast. Uh, and there were footprints, which is a little weird, but there weren't human footprints either. But up in the corner of the screen, there was a knuckle print that had never been noticed before. No one's ever, I mean, have you ever heard anybody talk about a knuckle print from the Bosberg situation? I have not. And um, when I looked at the knuckle print, what really struck me is that you can clearly count five digits all curled in the same direction. Now, at this time frame, 1969, 1970, there were no other handprints on record. There, were, there was no precedent for this. But when Krantz, of course, did the analysis of those handprints from the Bosberg, he, he's the one that figured out like, oh, their thumb's a little weird. It doesn't seem to bend like humans. And of course, that has later been um, reinforced by other handprints on record, whether it's the stuff from the Blue Mountains or the stuff from Kentucky or these other, or a few other locations where handprints have been collected. Um, and those first knuckle prints show that the thumb bends in the same direction as the other fingers. Now, that you shouldn't take that too literally because thumbs are very mobile appendages. You know, you can move your thumb quite a bit, but we have noticed over the years and John Green has, I believe wrote about this first to my knowledge that when a Sasquatch grabs something like a stick or a log that sometimes all five fingers bend around in the same direction. And I found that very interesting that there it was, there was the evidence sitting around in a drawer basically since 1970 when that footage was taken and no one's ever said anything about it or didn't have eyes to see. So that one thing makes me lean in the direction that those handprints could very well be real. You never know. You never know. I mean, it has been reported the Sasquatch have non-opposing thumbs. Yeah, and of course, there was no precedent. There was no way for Ivan Marks to know that at the time. And that's the takeaway from Grover's analysis of the open handprints. And to have that knuckle print in the same frame as what are clearly the Ivan Marks handprints um, is, is very uh, suggestive that those might be real. And so I don't know. I was pretty excited about that. If you've never seen it, I'll be happy to send it to you, Thomas. I'd, lo I'd love to see it. Thank you. No, oh, my pleasure. Information is to be shared amongst researchers. Yeah, I knew there were handprints from but I never knew they were photographed. Yeah, no one did. No one's ever mentioned it before. Fascinating stuff. It is. I mean, that whole Bosberg thing turned into a zoo. Everybody was there in their different camps. They had your John Green camp, you had your Peter Byrne camp, you had your Rennie Dan camp. <laughs> <laughs> it was like three sides before Operation Barbarossa. <laughs> they were about to go at each time. And Ivan Marks is like poor Poland in between the, Rus the Russian and German army just before the, the first volley struck. <laughs> yeah, it's like how little we've changed. You know, there's always camps going around. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it seems yeah. every good situation that's out there, you know, eventually turns into a circus of some sort. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of circuses like that, um, now, uh, 
what what are your thoughts on like long-term witnesses? And then I mean like locations where Sasquatches seem to pop by that location occasionally. And, and, you know, some people might call those habituations, but I hate that word. And there's so much baggage associated with, with it. And I'm not sure one can truly uh, habituate a Sasquatch in the true sense of the word. But I certainly think that there are properties that they go by and can be seen more uh, occasionally, more frequently, at least on these properties. Um, have you ever personally investigated something like that, that you thought was legitimate? Oh yeah, there's well here help here in the uh, Harrison Lake area. They may not be going by the same property all the time, but they're always going by a nearby one. You know, uh, the one of the more interesting cases, 2008, um, out the side of Mount Archibald, we looked into a case where a couple coming coming down after looking at a high viewpoint up there had one cross right in front of them, and we went through all the investigation and and. Interviewed them at the, went and looked at the site, saw where something come out and gone through there. A couple of days later, uh, the Chilliwack paper wanted to do a story on the Sasquatch question. We said, well, we just had this sighting. If you don't print any names, we'll take you to the location and talk about it. We did. A young man saw that and said, hey, I saw one there on that same stretch of road the following evening. And we interviewed him and his, his sighting was only half a kilometer further down the road. He saw it coming up. They saw it coming down. But when we interviewed him, we realized he didn't see it the following evening. He saw it four and a half hours before. Oh, okay. Yeah. You wrote about that in one of your books, if I remember right. Right, right. And, and you know, it's a fair bet, even though I can't say this with 100% certainty, that both these cases, they probably saw the same animal. Oh, I think that's very a very reasonable um, assumption. Yeah, and, and I, I've gotten to the point now, Thomas, and I don't know if you found this or not either. But we get a, here at the North American Bigfoot Center in the museum here, we get a lot of reports. Like on a good busy week and during the summer, we might get as many as five or eight Bigfoot reports in here. That, you know that we record. You know, and they're not like recent necessarily. It's usually you know I saw one back in '97 and that sort of thing. And about once a month, we get something really fresh and nice, which is which kind of cool. You know, it's a, one of the benefits of doing something like this. But um, what I've been noticing is that there, the sightings come out of the same areas all the time. And it, it even got to one point in December where several times in one week, uh, or actually in, in a two-week period, I think it was two or three times, a witness came in and they said, yeah, I saw a Sasquatch back in so-and-so, you know, down on the Calawash. I go, oh, yeah, was it on this road? And they go, yeah, how did you know? Says, because that's everybody sees them. And, I, and I'm, that's been happening to such a level now. Even, okay, there was a new sighting um, on April 14th. And I, we're hoping to have the, the witness on as a guest next week. But um, he, where he saw one was less than 3,000 feet away from where I got another report last June on the same creek, basically. Is that to be expected, do you think? Is, is that unusual? Or, or what do you think? Because I think that Sasquatches are, are, don't range as far as perhaps we suspect. Well, I'll tell you my own hypothesis on this, if you if you want to hear it. Oh, of course I do. Yeah. Okay. Now, I stretch. This is hypothesis on my part. I have no way to back this up. This is just, to me, what makes sense. I think the Sasquatch, assuming it does exist, and I do believe it does, lives in family groups. One dominant male, maybe two, three females and young. And that dominant male tolerates the son or the daughters, but when the sons get to a certain size, he drives them away. And this is what people are seeing most of the time: these these nomadic males getting bigger, getting stronger, getting bigger, getting stronger, leading a nomadic lifestyle. Because you get so many areas like 
little towns here in BC for long stretches of period, there are no reports. Then all of a sudden for a week to 10 days, several people see something and they stop almost as suddenly as they had started. So one had come in, hung around for a while and then moved on. And these and that's what people are seeing most of the time. These adolescent males getting bigger, getting stronger. And maybe someday they'll come across a family group, challenge the do aging dominant male and either kill him or drive him away. And sometimes people who see these great tip and sickly looking ones, they may be those may well be for, former dominant males that go back to that nomadic lifestyle if they're lucky enough not to be killed by the challenger. And they spend the rest of our lives that way. And maybe some of these uh, nomadic males, they live their whole lives that way because they never get the opportunity to take over a family group. But in the meantime, the females and the young are, are, are more or less in the same general area. And I don't mean on the same road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, that's the orangutan social model. But what kind of evidence do you have that there's these males fighting possibly to the death? Well, again, no evidence. Like I said, it's an hypothesis. But do you think we'd hear more battle stories? And No, you know, I have never heard, uh, other than uh, an old report of, of two prospectors in up uh, the Silver River, high country of the mouth of the Silver River that goes down in the Harrison Lakes back in the, uh, the 1950s, seeing what he saw were three juveniles acting like wrestlers. Well, it was almost like they were playing. I've never heard of a case of anyone watching Sasquatch fighting to the death. We have you know, we picked up an, a story, but they were also youngsters, almost certainly playing in New Mexico of two of the younger ones wrestling and whatnot, like you would expect young apes to do, essentially. Humans do it, of course, and we're all apes. Um, yeah, but you're right. And, you know, Grover wrote about that, too, now that, you're, now that I'm thinking of it, in his book about uh, some of the Blue Mountain evidence um, about uh, he was interpreting... Um, some broken trees and scuffed up stuff up there as being one uh, male exhibiting threatening behavior and trying to drive the other one out. It could have been a brown bear was driving out. That's why I think it's the key to the Sasquatch success. They're elusive by nature and their willingness to uh, yield the ground to the first intruder, be a human bear or whatever. I don't think a Sasquatch is going to go tangle with a grizzly bear because it's smart enough to know its key to survival is avoiding injury. Yeah, because even a broken leg would uh, be certain death for most large animals out in the woods. Absolutely. Yeah, the meek shall inherit the earth, right? Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. What kind of patterns have you discerned over the years, um, whether it be like food cycles or where sightings occur, uh, that sort of thing. What have, what have you found consistent? I found there's consistently no patterns, no patterns. I mean, we've had theories of migration in the past. We've had theories of hibernation. We've had theories, yet they're seen every, every season of the year. And they're seen in the same area every month of the year. You know, uh, I, I, we don't know. We're still at stage one. Does the animal exist or not? Yeah, we got to confirm that one before we start wondering about all the aspects of their being. But no, I, that's the first thing I've noticed there, Bobo, this is, is all these patterns that we've thought and John thought and Rene thought over the years and stuff. There are no patterns. Do you think that there's a strong correlation between deer migration routes and Sasquatches? 
Well, we have deer in the same area up here year, year after year after year, too. They don't seem to migrate either. Oh, not even like a vertical migra- migration to keep underneath the snow or anything? They go up a little higher in the summer months, eh? but they usually try to stay down where there's water and food. I imagine that's the same with everything. Like in British Columbia, it's more, uh, in my opinion, you'll have more luck seeing the Sasquatch if you're down by the creek banks than you are at the top above the tree line. Now, what about the coast of British Columbia? How much work have you done out there? Oh, uh, quite a bit. I've been all over the place up there. You're on Operation Sea Monkey, right? Yes, yes. That was 2016. That looked like a good one. Yes, it was a it was fascinating. Uh, I hated that name, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and of course that's that. Just just so our listeners know, that's uh, um, the project uh, spearheaded by I think Todd Neese, right? Todd and Diane Neese, right? Where they went out on a boat for what was it, a week or two or something, and basically cruised the coast. Uh, about 14, uh, 10 days, 10, 12 days. It was me, uh, Todd Neese, uh, Thomas Seward, Darren O'Brien, Ron Moorhead. Gunnar Morrison, uh, and the court captain of the boat, and his daughter. We were up there checking amongst the uh, along the islands because there's there's hundreds of islands between uh, the British Columbia mainland and Vancouver Island. And the idea is people report these things in water, and could they be hopping from island? According to Thomas Seward and his, and his people, the Clock Clocky Walk, the fall time is usually when Sasquatch is seen out in the beach digging for clams and stuff and the salmon were running at the time so then we figured that was good and in those 14 days we encountered almost everything you could want to encounter except for what we were looking for that's the way it usually rolls so yeah that's the way it usually rolls however there was one time the second night out that there were marks in the long grass along an abandoned cabin that seaward used to use that they seem to have a pretty big step to me, but they were not really defined discernible footprints. There could be other explanations for them. But yeah, that was it. Now we had a real, real fun time with the grizzly bears. <laughs> yeah, nothing but fun with grizzly bears. <laughs> yeah, we saw signs of wolves on the islands too. And we got, we, we got videotape. So they obviously swim because they had to get there somehow. The grizzly bears had to get there somehow. So they obviously swim between the islands. I mean, a person could swim from the mainland to the north end of Vancouver Island by crossing island 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 if he's lucky enough not to hit a bunch of jellyfish and sting them to death. Yeah, or he's swept to sea by those crazy currents out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, some of those, especially between the islands, these, some of these islands are only a football field across. Some of them are a mile across, but there's hundreds of them. And of course, that was the general area where um, um, Bob Titmus observed Sasquatches. Yeah, the Kitimat area on the mainland. Yeah, the Kitimat area in the 50s. Yeah, in the 60s. Yeah. Yeah, from a boat, actually. Yeah, well, he had a boat and he lost it when it caught fire. Oh, yeah, no, now, did you know Bob Titmus when he had that boat or did you meet him later? Later. Oh, I see. Okay, because I've often wondered what evidence did he lose? All his castings. Yeah, yeah. And then, now, of course, a lot of those still exist, luckily, in the, um, the, the Willow Creek China Flats Museum down there. Yeah, well, we, we had them. I mean, all his tracks he cast at the Patterson film site nine days later, we had those. And, and it was John Green and myself that arranged to have the Willow Creek Museum take them. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Are there photographs of the other footprints that he cast over the years that he lost in the boat accident? Uh, and Timmis's photographs, I haven't seen too many of them, but no, the, uh, most of his stuff is gone. Well, it wasn't donated in the museum, it's mostly gone, yeah. Another one of those cases, you know, where uh, lost to history. 
What were your takeaways with dealing with Bob Titmus? Like, what did you learn? Pick up from that guy. Well, Titmus was, he shunned publicity. He absolutely shunned publicity. He absolutely shunned publicity. And uh, Green said there was nobody better at finding footprints than Bob Titmus. Did you go tracking with them ever? A few times, but we didn't. As a matter of fact, I sent him on a case because I was still in Alberta at the time. I got a phone call from uh, uh, two people who were staying in Sasquatch Provincial Park that had something strange going on. And I called John and, and Bob because they were both living in Harrison. As a matter of fact, Titmus lived in John Green's old house when he was in Harrison. And uh, they both went out and investigated it for me. And they said, yeah, there is there. But for some reason, the parks people wiped them out before we can get a look at them. He says, that's the first time I ever heard of uh, the par- official park officials destroying evidence, knowing that the researchers were coming out to look at it beforehand. Yeah, with a name like Sasquatch Provincial Park, you'd think that would be the last thing they want to do. Yeah, yeah, but that's what they did. And uh, really, really odd. Yeah. Now, you said that was the first time. Is that that wasn't the last time you heard that? No, no, no. The only time. The only time. Okay, just the only time I've ever heard that. Yeah. Do you think there's anything to these conspiracies that the government's trying to withhold that information? No, I don't think the government cares. No. No, they don't. uh, Yeah, they don't care. It's to them, it's myth and mythology. Until the Smithsonian says there's something out there to care about, they won't care. Yeah. I mean, people think that someone comes, even if you, if, if Click Brackman were to run over Sasquatch today and bring the body in tomorrow, a lot of people think that would prove it the next day. No, it wouldn't. The scientists, the scientists would have to look at it. The other scientists would have to look at it. And then the whole ball of acceptance would go. And then once that's done, some politician will look and say, gee, do we need to protect these things? And that merry-go-round starts going. <laughs> Yeah, and then there's the birth of yet another circus. Right, right, absolutely. And and, and that's the slow process, and that's how it works. (laughs) Hey, Thomas, could you tell us about your most uh, close-up encounter with a grizzly? Oh, God. Um, Early August 1986, I was up north of Lillouette Lake. I think it's Route 99 between Lillouette and uh, Mount Curry. And uh, in 1986, it was still a dirt road. It's paved now. Uh, but I was off in one of the clear cuts there uh, on the south side of that road looking for evidence. And I parked my, and I went walking up this area where there were patches of trees that were, there was a clear cut to the north of the road and only patches below it. And a lot of the trees were, were left alone because they were too small to cut. I saw it before I heard it. And, and then suddenly out of that bramble on where the clear cut was, this bear came running down and he was charging. This is the scary, most frightening thing that's ever happened to me in my years of research. So I went to this little small batch of trees that was only about 15 paces away and I started climbing. The bear grabbed my pack on my back and it pulled me down. But for some reason, and I still don't know why, it let go again. And I went right back up them trees. It's amazing what, amazing what you can do when you're... 30 years younger or 20 years younger and, and the adrenaline is gone. And I got up there about 12 feet and I looked down and I thought it was a black bear at first because he was jet black in color, but looking down on him, the fact he didn't climb the tree like a monkey after me, I realized I was looking at a grizzly because he had the blunt face, the long four claws, the hump behind the head. He would have been large for a black bear, but he was rather small for a grizzly, but he was big enough. <laughs> and he 
he circled around the bottom of that tree, popping his teeth and, and snorting for about, oh, five minutes, stood up against the tree a couple of times. Then, and then he lumbered off the way he came. About an hour after it left, I came down out of the trees. And I walked back, rushed back up to where my truck was parked, which is incidentally where my rifle was. And I took the small pack off my back. And that's when I realized I was bleeding. The pack that I was wearing was absolutely eviscerated, where he clawed that thing wide open. But the only parts that got through to my flesh and my shirt were two small puncture wounds in my lower back. And that's what was bleeding. Three stitches each, and they were closed. But the pack itself was absolutely ruined. I don't know if it, I don't know why it didn't go for my legs, which were lower or anything. I don't know, but it went for the pack and it pulled me down by the pack and it let go again. Do you saw that shredded backpack? Yes. I keep it as a reminder that we're not the top of the food chain. Oh, museum quality cliff. Oh yeah, that's great. Yeah, we, we're, we accept donations, Thomas. Anything you ever want to give us. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you ever come up to Harrison, stop by our info center in Harrison Hospital. There's a little Saskatchewan Museum there that myself and Bill Miller put together for them. I've heard about that, actually. I caught wind of that, and I, I've, one of the things I wanted to do up in British Columbia this year when I got up there, but COVID, you know, I'm all vaccinated and stuff, so I'll wait until we're, I'm allowed to travel a little bit. It won't be too long. This has been a fantastic, wide-ranging conversation, and I've learned a lot. Um, and again, thank you so much for coming on, Thomas. You're, you're one of these researchers that I've respected long before I, I you know, even cut my own teeth in research. So I, I sincerely appreciate you being on the show, your ongoing efforts to document whatever you can in Bigfoot land, and also your friendship. So thanks so much. You're very welcome, Cliff. It was an honor. Yeah, same for me, Tom. It was an honor for me. Uh always looked up to you and admired your work, got your books and yeah, it's fun to talk to you and I'll check you out when I get to BC sometime. Then hopefully in the next year, I'm going to come by and see you and check out your little museum you got going. Roger that Boba. Looking forward to it. Great talking to you again too. All right. Well, have a good one. You too, mate. All right. Thanks so much, Thomas. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was a lively little chat, Cliff. That was great, man. I knew he was going to be such a good guest because, man, he what a fountain of information. What just long-term, uh, steadfast research is under this guy's belt. Um, I was looking forward to this for weeks, so I'm so stoked we had him on finally. You know what? Uh, being someone who gets imitated a lot, I wanted to, I forgot to ask him, who does the best imitation of you? Because <laughs> you know, everyone does imitations of everybody, you know, and... Yeah, a couple of times I was sitting there going, it sounds like, what was it, Edward C. Robinson? <laughs> well, God, did he not sound like Renee? Holy smokes, that was a really solid Renee imitation. Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. But I mean, the information was, yeah, that was, that was great. I hope, I hope the listeners appreciate what they're getting here. Yeah, I, I hope so. I think that perhaps Bitcoin and Beyond is offering a little something that some other podcasts don't, you know, because lucky for us, we have a pretty pretty big Rolodex in the Bigfoot world. And, and that gives us opportunities to have people that we look up to ourselves um, as guests. And um, it's just what a pleasure to have Thomas on. Yeah, his show, the On the Shoulders of Giants, that podcast he does with Julie Ranch, they've had some great guests on there. I listened to that um, they got Shane show on there too. Yeah. Monster X radio. Those, those guys. I mean, I, I like those shows because maybe they're not as dramatic as some of the other shows or like professionally produced, but the information I know that they've done their homework and that you're hearing, it's not just something you're hearing on the internet. Like what's this crap or is this true? Or you, you can pretty much know it's true. If you hear it on, on that monster X radio shows. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I love a good podcast. I don't listen to any of them, but I, I love a good podcast done by good researchers because at least I know that the information is sound and the people who do listen to all these sort of things is getting, are getting good information. Well, all right, Bobs, why don't you take us out? Yep. All right. Well, that was a good uh, guest you lined up, Cliff. That was an honor to have Tom Steenberg on. And I hope you enjoyed it, folks. So if you did, hit share, hit like, give us a good review. And until next week, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 